Chapter 3, Part 1 The Return by Carter of the Assault on Mount Everest, 1922 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Vlahakis, San Francisco. On June 14th, we were cheered with the news that our transport was approaching, and I think a good many sighs of relief were uttered. We had quite made up our minds to cross over into the Kata Valley, and, having had a sufficiency of rest, to explore the Kamachu more completely than had been done in 1921, and, if possible, to examine the whole gorge of the Arun where it breaks through the great Himalayan range. But our first idea was to get down to a decent elevation, where some rest could be obtained, where we could get adequate bathing and washing for our clothes and get everybody into a fairly respectable condition again. Living continuously for many weeks at elevations never below and generally far above 16,500 feet does not tend to general cleanliness, and it also, after a time I think, tends to general degeneration. At the same time, we were by no means convinced that at medium elevations there is any particular loss of physical powers or that acclimatization takes long to complete. I found, personally, that I was getting better and better when exerting myself at the medium heights to which I went. I found that during the march that was in front of us that I could walk at elevations of over 16,000 feet very much more easily than when I first arrived at the Rongbuk Glacier, and this certainly does not show that one had been degenerating physically. I think, really, that the strain was more a mental one and this remark probably also applies to every member of our party. At the same time, it was most exhilarating to think that one was descending to a low altitude. We made our first march back to the Rongbuk Glacier, and that evening we were left in peace by the llamas, that is to say, but not by the wind, which howled consistently, bringing with it thin driving sleet. On the following morning, we arranged that we should all meet the Rongbuk Lama, and so, having got our kit packed, we left it to be loaded by the Tibetans, and the whole party, including all our followers, porters, all the Gurkhas who were with us, with the exception of Tejbir, who had gone on in advance with Geoffrey Bruce and Norton, went up to the monastery. There we waited in the courtyard until the Lama himself descended from his inner sanctuary in state. Tea was first served in the usual way, ordinary tea being provided, I am glad to say, for the others and myself by special arrangement of the interpreter. I think Noel, however, a man of infinite pluck, took down a bowl or two of true Tibetan tea. The Lama made special inquiries after the expedition and then began the blessing. He offered us his very best wishes and presented me, through Paul, with a special mark of his goodwill, a little image of one of the Taras, or queens of Tibetan mythology. My special one was the Green Tara, who takes precedence among all ladies. 
this was a mark of very great favour. Paul was also presented with another little mark and many little packets of medicine, which were to preserve him from all and every description of the illnesses which afflict and worry humanity. The Buddhistic side of Paul came up on this occasion, and he received his blessings and the medicines in the most humble and reverent spirit. The Gurkhas all went up too and were suitably blessed, being even more humble in their aspect than the very much overcome and reverent porters themselves. They could hardly be induced to approach His Holiness. However, we all parted on the most friendly terms and left our own good wishes for what they were worth with the old gentleman. By three o'clock in the afternoon, we arrived at Chodzong, but what a difference there was in our march. The few days of the monsoon and the small amount of rain which had fallen, even this little way back from the mountains, had changed the whole aspect of the valley. Flowers had begun to show, and in places there was even a little green grass. At Chodzong there was quite a considerable amount of grass, and we enjoyed here what was more pleasant than anything we had experienced for a long time. A shower of rain. We had almost forgotten the existence of rain and the relief from the very trying dryness of the Tibetan atmosphere, which parches one's skin as if one was in the Sahara, was immense. Still, at Chodzong it was cold at night and the temperature below freezing point. Here we found all our ponies and their saces returned from taking Norton and Geoffrey Bruce over to the Kata Valley. Also the gigantic Drubler and his small Giamda very fit and well. This camp at Chodzong was a place particularly impressed on our minds on our way up, as we had there the very coldest breakfast that we anywhere indulged in. The wind was blowing half a hurricane, and the temperature nearly at zero, while our breakfast was actually being brought to us in the morning, and the misery and discomfort of that particular temperature was in great contrast to the delightful weather we were now experiencing. From this place we diverted a large convoy of our spare baggage to Shekar to await our return after we had finished our further wanderings in Kata. The following day took us up the Rebu Valley. It was a fairly long and very windy march, but the climate was so greatly improved that, generally speaking, it was very enjoyable, and again we camped in a very pleasant spot in grassy fields. Such a change from our late life. Not only that, but in the evening, as the people up here had no prejudices, we caught a sufficient number of snow trout really a barbell, to make a dish. My own servant, Kaha Singh, the cook, always had a reputation for being, and always was, a first-rate poacher. At any form of netting or tickling trout, he was a great hand. However, he was completely eclipsed later on by one of MacDonald's servants, to whom I am quite certain no fish poacher that ever was could have given a wrinkle. He was also quite a good hand at catching fish with rod and line. The Gurkhas, as usual, took a hand. They are immensely fond of fish and their methods are primitive. 
Tejbir, who came along with us, was nearly recovered from his exertions with Finch and Geoffrey. He had lost a good deal of skin from seven or eight fingers and a large patch off his foot. But though his frostbites were many, they were slight. He was really suffering from being rather overdone and took at least a fortnight to recover. The next day's was an interesting march, though very long and tiring for the animals. Our way led over the high ridge, which divides the Dzakachu country from the Kata district. Although the rise was not very great from our camp at approximately 13,500 feet, still the pass itself was just 17,000 feet, or rather, to be absolutely accurate, just three feet under. The way led for several miles, hardly rising at all, up a grassy valley, and then over the strangest and wildest and most completely barren of hillsides. From here, no doubt, we should have a fine view of the great supporters of Everest, but clouds completely obliterated the mountains. We had the ordinary balmy Tibetan breezes through the snows, but modified to what they would have been quite a short time before. The descent from the Doya La was very fine indeed, the colour wonderful, and very soon giving promise of a greener land. The first 300 feet on the Kata side is down a very steep, rocky track, and I was told afterwards by Geoffrey Bruce that he never dismounted, and that the wonderful Giamda had carried him down without making a mistake. On that day, we all of us well overstopped 17,000 feet. There was a little joke about Crawford, who was not very tall, but who certainly did not deserve his nickname of the two-and-a-half-footer given him by the porters. It was a joke among them afterwards, when told the height of the pass, that he had just missed the 17,000 feet by six inches. It was a very long descent, but into a valley rapidly changing from bare hillsides to grassy banks. Never was there a more welcome change, and here we came into a real profusion of alpine flowers. It was a full 20-mile march to our halting place in Trateza, and as we got down where the valley narrowed, we passed the very picturesquely situated village of Teng. Everybody was delighted with the change. Our camp was pitched near the village on quite thick and beautiful green grass and the hillsides were green and covered with bushes. We were absolutely happy and intensely relieved and pleased with our surroundings. The ponies and animals simply pounced on the green grass and were even more happy than their masters. The following morning we all started off in wonderful spirits, shared in by the yaks, several of whom took it into their heads to run amok and we had a first-class scene of confusion in the rather tight camp before we could get matters straightened out. One yak especially was peculiarly gay here, and took to the hillside after throwing his load on three or four occasions. We had, in fact, a real hunt after him. Everybody joined in the fun, and I am afraid on one or two occasions some of the more light-hearted of the porters kept him going on purpose. This march, however, was even pleasanter than the one before. The part we were travelling down grew richer and richer. 
The hillsides were thickly clothed in cedar trees and in shrubs of many kinds. The valley itself, wherever possible, was cultivated. We passed on our way two or three small villages, extremely well situated, and finally debouched into an open valley, full of fields and cultivation, where we joined the main Arun Valley and the district of Kata proper. Kata is a fairly large district and not a village. The larger settlement is called Kata Shika, and it is there that the Tsongpen has his abode. The whole of this district also is under the Tsongpen of Sheka Tsong, and the Tsongpen of Shika apparently has not as full powers by any means as the Tsongpen at Sheka Tsong. However, for all that, he appears to be quite a little autocrat. It was quite delightful riding out into the main valley, and there also we were cheered by meeting Geoffrey Bruce and John MacDonald, who had come out some miles from where our camp had been established at the small village of Teng. We passed also the old gentleman known, I think, in the last year's expedition as the Havildar, but whom Geoffrey and Norton had promptly christened Father William. He was a rather officious but at the same time most helpful old man, and on our way back he asked us to come in for a meal into his very attractive garden. But as it was only a mile or so from Teng where our camp was pitched, we did not think it was worthwhile then, knowing we should see a good deal more of the old gentleman. He brought us plenty of what we were yearning for, fresh green vegetables, the very greatest boon. We found our invalids very nearly recovered. Norton's feet, however, were tender and Geoffrey's toes still in a distinctly unpleasant condition. It was wonderful, nevertheless, how well both were able to get about with the help of plenty of socks. Our camp was pitched in fields at a height of about 10,800 feet, and below us, at about the distance of three miles, we could see the entrance to the Great Arun Gorge, where it cuts through the Himalaya. On the opposite side of the Arun, the two mountains, old friends of ours that we had noticed on our way up, looked down on the camp. On the whole of my way down, I was struck with the resemblance between these valleys and parts of Lahul and Kai Lang. They were less rich, however, and the forests of pencil cedar not so fine, but still, the whole character of the country and of the hillsides was very much the same. Above the camp at Teng was a very well-situated monastery, which Noel afterwards photographed. Soon after our arrival during the afternoon, the Tsongpen from Katashika arrived to meet us. He was reported at first to be very suspicious of the party, and such indeed appeared to be the case. However, after a long conversation and having presented him with pictures of the Dalai Lama and of the Tashilampo Lama, as well as with the ubiquitous Homburg hat, he became much more confidential and we finished up very good friends. He also told us that on the following day he would bring down some Tibetan dancers and acrobats to give us a performance. The rapidity with which the whole party seemed to recover at Kata was perfectly wonderful. Everybody was in first-class health and spirits, especially all our porters, 
and that night their high spirits were not only due to the atmospheric conditions, but were taken into them in a manner they thoroughly approved of, and of which they had been deprived for some time. However, after all their very hard work and the wonderful way in which they had played up, it is not altogether to be wondered at if they did occasionally go on to the spree on their way back. So attractive was the whole country, and so strong was the call of the Kama Valley, that we were all very soon anxious to get a move on again. Tejbir was still not quite recovered, and would be all the better for further rest, so he was detailed with one of the other Gurkhas, Sarabjit, to stay behind and take charge of our camp and spare equipment. The rest of us all set to work and planned an advance into the Kama Valley, and we hoped also an exploration of it, both towards the Snows Up and to the Poptila, which is the main road into the valley of the Arun, and, if possible, up the great Arun Gorge itself. But this year's monsoon never gave us a chance of carrying out more than a small portion of that program. We were now living in an entirely different climate. We had many showers of rain, which were hailed with delight by the people of the country, as their crops were now fairly well advanced. The crops at Carter consist chiefly of peas and barley, as usual, but there is a certain amount of other grain and vegetables to be obtained from the gardens. Having arranged the transport, we started our caravan off to Kartashika. Norton had issued a large-hearted invitation for us to lunch with him at the mouth of the Arun Gorge. Previously, Norton and Geoffrey had explored, while they were waiting, the country round as far as they could go on horseback, and Norton had discovered at the mouth of a gorge an alp like those on the Kashmir Mountains, surrounded with a forest which he described as equal to a southern Himalayan forest, and we positively must go and see it, and climb up the hillsides and look down into the gorge itself. We all accepted his invitation with the greatest alacrity. On the afternoon of the day before starting, the Tsong Pen, as he had promised, produced us his acrobats and dancers, and we had a very hilarious afternoon. They were not particularly good either as actors or as acrobats, but they danced with prodigious vigour, and it was altogether great fun. Before all the dancers and the little plays, they covered their faces with masks of an extremely primitive kind. They failed at most of their tricks once or twice before accomplishment, and these failures were invariably greeted both by the spectators and by the actors with shrieks of laughter. On the following day, June 19th, we all set off, the luggage proceeding direct to Katashika under the charge of the interpreter and the Gurkhas, while we switched off to Norton's Alp. It really was delightful, and though the forest was rather a dwarfed forest, it contained several kinds of fir trees, birch and rhododendron scrub, and after Tibet was in every way quite charming. We climbed up the hillsides and suddenly came round the corner onto great cliffs diving straight down into the Arun Valley, and we could see further down how enormously the scale of the mountains increased. 
It was a most attractive gorge, but on our side it appeared to be almost impossible to have got along, so steep were the hillsides. On the far bank, that is the true left bank, the east bank, there was a well-marked track, and it appears the lower down it crosses to the right bank and then continues on the right bank to the junction with the Kamachu. Later on, Noel and Morris were able to explore and photograph the greater part of the gorge. We all sat on the top of the cliffs and indulged in the very pleasant amusement of rolling great rocks into the river a thousand feet below us. Always a fascinating pursuit, especially when one is quite certain that there is no one in the neighbourhood. The lunch did not turn up for some time when an exploring party discovered that our porters, who had been detailed to carry it, had dropped in at a village and visited the Bali Mao and could hardly get along at all in consequence. Finally, however, the lunch was rescued and an extremely pleasant time passed. It was absolutely epicurean. Gruyere cheese, sardines, truffled yaks, and finally, almost our last three bottles of champagne. It was intended to be an Epicurean feast, and it was so. By the evening, we arrived in Shika and found our camp pitched in beautiful grassy fields high above the village of Shika. The Tsongpen was very anxious to entertain the whole party, but we were rather lazy and did not want to go down to his village, which was some way off, but promised him that we would pay him a visit on our return from Kama. The Tsongpen, however, imported his cooks and full outfit and gave us a dinner in our own tent, himself sitting down with us and joining in. He was a plump and very well-dressed little man, and by now had completely recovered his confidence in us. He was, however, very anxious that we should do no shooting, and this anxiety of his was no doubt very largely occasioned by the fact that he had only arrived from Lhasa about a fortnight before our arrival. We were to reach in two marches, Sakayathang in the Kama Valley, where Colonel Howard Burry and his party had encamped the year before, our first march led us over the Samchang La to a camp called Chokabo. It was a steep and rough walk over the pass, but knowing the wonderful capacity of the Tibetan pony, several of the party took ponies with them. It was necessary both for Geoffrey and for Norton to rest their feet as much as possible until completely cured. And so on arrival at the Chokabo, they took their ponies on over our next pass, the Chogla, which is no less than 16,280 feet and down into the Kamachu. This is a very rough road indeed. We had here reached the most perfect land of flowers, and in the lowland which lies between the Samchangla and our camp at Chokabo, we found every description of alpine flora, reinforced by rhododendrons, the very last of the rhododendrons. We also found several kinds of iris. The road leading up to the Samchung La was extremely steep and rough, but the path was well marked, and it was evident there was a considerable amount of traffic leading into the Kamachu. The local people stoutly denied that yaks could cross, 
but later on we actually found yaks carrying loads over this road. I can quite understand their reason for not wishing to send their yaks, as the road from one end to the other is very bad for animals. At Chocabo, all the riding ponies were dispensed with, with the exception of Jeffreys and Norton's. These two ponies they particularly wished to look after, as they had bought them, knowing that they must assure mounts, probably to the end of the journey. They had certainly picked up the most useful little couple. All the same, they had to walk most of the way, as it was quite out of the question for anyone to have ridden at all, except over short pieces of open ground, and it was perfectly wonderful the way in which these two ponies got over the most shocking collection of rocks, big and little, and how they negotiated the extremely slippery and rocky path which led down from the Chogla. The ascent to the Chogla was easy, and the latter half of it still under winter snow, as also was the first thousand feet of the descent. The mountains were interesting on each side, so much so that Somerville and Crawford went off for a little climb on the way. The descent was delightful, although the road was, as I have said, very stony indeed. One passes through every description of eastern Himalayan forest and wonderful banks of rhododendrons of many kinds. We were, unfortunately, much too late for their full bloom, but a month earlier this descent must be perfectly gorgeous, the whole hillsides being covered with flowering rhododendrons. The descent to Sakayathang is at least 5,000 feet, and maybe a little more. Thang means a flat bench, and such was Sakayathang, set in gorgeous forest and deep in grass and flowers. But the weather was breaking fast, and by evening the clouds had descended and wiped out the whole of the valley. Before it was quite obliterated, we got glimpses of what it must be like in fine weather. End of chapter 3, part 1